Everybody, welcome to this week's episode of the Horror Crypt Podcast, episode number 120. Man, we're getting up there in movies, aren't we? Now, last week I said that we were going to be re- basically going back back in time, getting in our time machine and heading all the way back to the 80s. Well, we are certainly going to be doing a movie from 1986 today. Now, what movie am I going to be reviewing? Well, I am going to be reviewing Poltergeist 2, The Other Side. Now, this one, um, it was... I've, I've always thought this is a great uh, sequel. So a couple of, you know, really creepy sort of stuff that goes on. But, you know, it's it's the same sort of thing. You know, we're all trying to... These ghosts are all trying to find Carol Ann and stuff like that. So there's really nothing to this movie except for, you know, we've got a, a Native American that's introduced into the movie and also this demonic character by the name of Cain who is um, the demonic preacher of this movie. But, you know, we've got all the all the original cast coming back, except, unfortunately, for Dominic Dunn. Now, that she was the um, daughter of the Freelings, the older daughter of the Freelings. She was, unfortunately, murdered shortly after the, fir- the first film's release in 1982. So it's really interesting because no, nowhere in this movie do they ev- ever even... Um, hinted her maybe they could have said oh well, you know she's gone away to college or stuff like that so we get absolutely no um you know no mention of her whatsoever and I, I really actually thought that was rather rather strange because you know you could maybe I uh, you know I know that this terrible thing has happened to her and she's been you know murdered by this person but at least in the movie just make some sort of reference to her like you know that you know maybe the grandmother can sit there and say oh you know how is such and such doing you know, at college, oh yeah, she's doing really well, she lives on, on, you know, on campus and stuff like that, so, you know, but no, no mention of her, unfortunately, so we do see that this, the film basically takes place in California and Arizona, and in, it's filmed in the spring of 1985, now the movie itself was released on the 23rd of May, 1986, it runs for 91 minutes, the budget was $19 million, but it's really interesting. The box office was $75 million. So it wasn't really, I mean, it made its money back, but it wasn't one of these movies that you think to yourself that being a sequel, it was going to steamroll over everything. I mean, it was, you know, as I said, there's really not much to this movie, you know, as far as the, the whole premise of the, the entities trying to find Carol Ann. We're only just upping the ante with regards to this movie with making it just a little bit more in-depth as to the the demonic spirits that actually are trying to get Carol Ann. But, and as I said, they, they you know, introduced this uh, character by the name of Reverend Kane, and he comes back in, he comes into the fold to try and be sort of like a little bit of an extra scare into the movie. But look, I thoroughly enjoyed this movie. I've always really enjoyed this movie. Um, and, you know, I mean, this is, <laughs> I, I don't think I've seen this movie for about the last five years. So now that I've actually got it, I'm going to be, you know, putting this back into the rotation of, of movies that I watch. But look, thank you very much once again for coming to visit me at the Horror Crypt Podcast. I really am very, very humbled that you guys keep coming back week after week to listening to me prattle on about, you know, movies that, I, that I'm that i reviewing. I've got some very interesting movies coming up. So, you know, sit, sit tight to the end of the year. I've got some great movies coming up. But before we get started on this movie, we have to listen to the trailer. So sit back and relax because here is the trailer to Poltergeist 2, The Other Side. Watch your drawer. Don't know. Who is he? 
Princess Carol Ann. He is the beast. Hi. He knows your strength is your love, and he hates you for that. He's been trying to pull his family apart, and he will continue to try. It's her he's after. Not Robbie, not you or Diane. Carol Ann. Why the hell won't you leave us alone? So our movie opens up where we're watching this car driving into the desert, or this, this truck driving into the desert, and uh, we see that this uh, Native American man goes up onto a high mountain and is just sitting there with a very big open fire, you know, going, and then all of a sudden we see this big, you know, flash of light, and there's another Native American man sitting directly opposite him, and then we see that as the other Native American man starts to do some chanting or whatever, we see this the smoke start to come up out of the fire, and uh, it's very interesting the way they do it, you know, in a in a cinematography sort of way because the smoke sort of like envelops um, the first gentleman, and then all of a sudden we've got this demon that that you know goes towards him, and then goes up into his nose, and it's like okay. That's an interesting start to the movie. We then transition over to, it says, the film is set one year after the events of the first film. And we're now seeing that Cuesta Verde, the neighborhood, has been turned into an archaeological dig centered around the spot where the Freeling's home stood. So this gentleman is, is driving in his truck, heading towards where the Freeling's house were, was, and we've got um, a police officer basically with a barricade making sure that nobody gets in, I guess, in, to make sure that no one's going to go and ransack any of the existing houses that are still standing there. Although they're along this neighborhood and along the street where the Freelings lived, there is for sale signs everywhere. So it's like, yeah, I probably wouldn't want to be living there either. Plus, there's also a, a huge amount of dust and wind that is going through this place as well. So it's, it's you know, it's not a very nice place to, to go. But anyway... He drives up to where the Freeling's house used to be, and they've he's found, or we found um, Tangier, or Tangier Baron. She was the um, psychic that helped the Freeling's family out in the first one. We thought, even though she said this house is clean, it definitely was not. But we find that she's there, and she has said to this gentleman by the name of Taylor that an excavation led to the discovery of a cave by the ground crew which happens to be directly under the swimming pool of where the Freeling's house used to be. So we see that the Native American man Taylor is actually a shaman and he investigates the cave for himself and he realizes that the spirit of Reverend Henry Kane, an insane preacher whom he had seen in dreams, is now after Carol Ann and he decides he's going to go and defend her which is actually a good idea because we're not going to send Tangier because Tangier can't defend anyone. I still think that she's, you know, one of these people that claim a lot but doesn't do a great <laughs> great deal of stuff because, you know, as we all know, when she said this house is clean in number one, then that night when they're sitting down relaxing, having a great time when they're about to leave the house, the house starts freaking the hell out again. So I don't know whether we're going to really trust Tangier's um, psychic abilities. We're hoping now that Taylor... This uh, uh, this uh, Native American man is going to go and help out um, the family. We now see the Freeling family have relocated to Phoenix, Arizona, and they now live in the house where Diane's mum, Jess, is. And she is very clairvoyant and believes that Diane and Carol Ann possess the same abilities. Of course, we're, we're seeing that uh, poor old um, the father, I can't remember, Stephen, that's right, Stephen and Rob, the son is they're, they're listening to a baseball game on the radio and it's really interesting because poor old Stephen he's actually lost his real estate license he's no longer a real estate person he's actually now going door to door selling vacuum cleaners and we're seeing that he is trying to 
fix the vacuum cleaner and not very successfully mind you he turns it on and it moves like you know a couple of inches and then bang it's sort of like you know <laughs> smoke and steam comes out of it and sparks and he's like oh okay that's that's the end of that but it's really interesting because they're they're listening to the radio of this baseball game going on and this is you know obviously there's something on the in the game that actually is really exciting and steven says to rob did you see that and he goes yeah no dad i didn't see that and he goes well you got to use your imagination and he goes yeah why can't we get a tv and he goes no 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 we're not getting a tv you know why we're not getting a tv so <laughs> we're not doing it we then transition up to the bedroom up to the master bedroom where we've got Diane and we've got Stephen talking about, um, they've put a claim in for the house. Now, it's really interesting how they come about trying to explain to the, the insurance companies about the house. They denied our claim again. What? I told you we never should have told them that the house vanished into thin air. That's exactly what I've been talking about. You tell the truth and what do you get? Nada. They say that if the house disappeared, then technically it's only Missing? Missing? What do they think? This house is going to return or something? Now it's been a full year. The house is not coming back. I got a, a gut feeling, Diane. I'm positive about that. I know that, Stephen. You tell them that... No, no, I'm going to fill out the fourth plan. Oh, great. Well, what are we going to claim this time? Act of God? House napping? Stephen, we are almost broke. Okay, we're, we're broke, but we're not, we're not starving. Okay. But I don't happen to like having to live off my mother, and I think that we deserve a house of our own again someday. Oh, honey, gee, gosh. See, that's a difference between you and me, Diane. I am into downward mobility. I, I'm not settled for it. I'm into it. I, I like getting out there in the streets and meeting those people. I like selling vacuums. I like carrying the pipes and the apparatus and my little demo case. Let's get the kids up and we'll... We'll paint the car different colors, kind of day glow, like we used to do when we were kind of freaky, you know, the freaky freelings on the road again, you know, that the family whose house disappeared. Watch them find it, Diane. I'm not going to get upset about this, but I tell you something, I'm writing them back, and when I sign that letter, I'm signing Mr. President. Stephen, <laughs> One thing I really love about Stephen is that, you know, he is, even though he's broken, you know, and he's, I, I think in this scene, it was really like he was really playing on the fact that, you know, and, and the, the scene actually does go on a little bit further where, you know, Diane says, honey, you were never a hippie, you know, except for this woman by the name of Cookie Gurner, whatever. And he, he's like, oh, Cookie, you know, and he's getting all excited about, about her. But, you know, this is where, you know, Stephen is like, you know, it's, it's all good. You know, it's no dramas. Yeah, we've lost the house we can't find the house we're basically broke we're living off your mother but we're having a great time we're not starving of course you're not starving you're living off the poor woman but um it's it's very interesting in this scene where we then transition downstairs and there's caroline and she's sitting there drawing and we've got jess the grandmother comes over to her and says you know what are you drawing and she goes oh i don't know you know and we see that she's drawing um the picture of this very very evil looking character now before we got to that scene i should have actually just digressed back a little bit because um you know there is uh jess and she's talking to diane and she was saying about the fact that when they were all sitting in the garden having lunch the other day you know caroline was sitting next to jess's knitting bag or knitting basket and she, you know, Jess says to her sweetheart can you pass me the yellow yarn and instead of actually looking for it there is Caroline literally puts her hand into the to the basket doesn't look for it picks it up and gives it to her, her grandmother and says and she goes oh okay can you please give me the white one or a different color and she puts her hand back in there and finds it without looking for it and gives it to her again so we tr we're trying to see that you know there is Jess and she's not trying to frighten Diane she just wants to say you know, well, this is what she can do. And so now we're seeing this picture that Caroline's drawing and it's like she's she's got a, you know, a second sight. She can see you know, who this person is going to be. The picture is very, very detailed. And so, you know, we and as, as the scene did say, you know, we don't I don't want to live off my mother and we really deserve a house for, of our own someday. And, you know, Stephen is very much now he's ready to just, you know, take his family on the road and have a great time. But that's not that's not reality i mean that if for a lot of people i guess that would work unfortunately for this situation it's not gonna not really gonna work for stephen and his family but of course the that night we see that caroline gets up out of bed for some reason i don't know this house is big enough that you you would think that once again that maybe robbie and caroline could have separate bedrooms but no 
they're staying in the same bedroom again. So it's like, can't you guys just give you, you know, can't you guys, can't you just give your children separate bedrooms? This is freaking me the hell out, really. Um, so we see that Caroline gets up out of bed and she walks into her grandmother's bedroom, gives her a kiss and goes back to bed, uh, goes back to bed. And then as we're seeing the, there's a storm that comes over the, you know, over the house and we see that there's a little bit of drip of water that's dripping onto a little toy telephone. And as the drips are hitting the telephone, the telephone starts to ring and Caroline gets up out of bed, goes over to the phone and picks it up and says, hello. And she, and she goes, yes, yes, I'll be a good girl. Yes. Oh, I love you too. Okay. Good night, grandma and hangs up the phone. The following morning, we see that unfortunately Jess has later died and we see that Caroline is going downstairs and obviously the mother Diane is, is in tears and you know the, the husband's trying to console her and Robbie's very upset and Caroline comes downstairs and she says, you know, what's going on? And, and it's like, oh, you know, grandma died, you know, at, you know, last night. But of course, it's not, you know, it, it, for Caroline, it's not upsetting because she had already had the conversation. She knew this was going to happen. She also had the conversation with her grandmother over the telephone. So really, you know, you're expecting Caroline to just break into tears, but no. But I also find it very interesting that there's, you know, Diane saying, we deserve our house of our own one day. Well, guess what? And it's, hor it's horrible to say this, and I'm not trying to say this being horrible, but there you go. You know, the mother dies, you got a brand new home. Well, you got a home to live in anyway, but you know, you don't have to go and try to find a house, you know. So I thought that was very, very interesting, but it's also in, uh, very interesting that, you know, when they, when Diane and her mother was talking, Diane is told by her mother one last time that she'll always be there if she needs her. So it's almost like the grandmother knew that she was about to um, pass away. So just giving Diane that reassurance that whatever happens, I'm not too far away. So we see that um, in the, the following night that things start happening in the house, so much so that it starts to drive the family out of the house. And as we're running towards the front door and, you know, Stephen's trying to get the kids and Diane out of this house because the whole thing is starting to happen all over again, they open up the door and Taylor happens to be standing there in the doorway waiting for them. Who the hell are you? Name's Taylor. Great. Good name. Come on, let's go. And Gina Barron sent me. Oh, yeah? Well, say hello to the magic munchkin for us, will you? Steve, wait, wait. Sent you for what? It's no use running. It'll find you. You're better off here. Let's go. You stay. We're gone. It is really true, though, that, you know, they can't keep running. There's nowhere that they can possibly go. And we find out that, obviously, because Taylor has seen the apparition of Cain, and we see that Cain has begun his first assault on the home. So, obviously, we understand that Cain and the demons can't get through the television as the family's removed all the TVs in the house. So, Cain's minions and all the demons can only find their other way in, which is through Caroline's toy telephone. But we see that the attack had failed in this in this regard because the family decides we're getting out of the house. And Taylor's like, well, you know, if you just stay here, there's no use running. And they're like, nope, we're out of here. We're gone. We're out of here. Goodbye. But they get to a diner and they're sitting there. And, and you know, Diane is right. She's like, we can't keep driving around, Stephen. We've got nowhere to go. And we really do see that at one stage, there's this woman who's sitting with her friend at the bar in the, in the diner. And a very strange, you know, Thing comes over her because she looks towards where Diane is and she really goes all funny and it's actually not her at, the, at that moment it's actually the grandmother is coming through and using her as sort of like a vessel to say to Diane and the family you know you can't run from this you've got to stay together you've got to be strong you've got to you know face this thing head on so we do see that the family decides they're going to get back in the car and they really don't know where they're going to go. But there is Taylor and he's sitting on their car. And you know, Taylor was not in the um, diner at all. But as they walk towards him, he's like, you know, the woman in there was, was actually right. You know, you can't run. And he's like, well, and you know, there's Stephen saying, what do you mean? You, how did you know what happened in there? And he goes, well, I know what happened in there. She told you the truth. You can't keep running. You can't keep hiding from this. It has to happen that you've got to face this head on. So we then see that uh, Taylor and the family go back to the house. And, you know, the family are very trepidatious about walking in. But Taylor, being a shaman and being very in tune with everything that's going on, he wants to reassure everybody in the family that the house is actually okay for them to go back and re-inhabit. 
the house is okay, you're sure? Evers agrees. It's okay for now. Well, the dog agrees, huh? Gee, that's terrific, isn't it? Yes. Your car. Yeah. Very angry. Uh-huh. I'll fix it. Make it happy? I think one of the best parts about that whole thing is that, you know, obviously, you know, that Stephen is being very facetious, saying, oh, well, well, the dog agrees, that's fantastic. But I love it how, you know, when when Taylor does say, your car's very angry, you look over and there is smoke, you know, not, not a huge amount of smoke, but there is some steam and everything coming out from the from the bonnet of the car. And he's like, well, I'll, I'll go and make it happy for you. And, he, and of course, Stephen's like, uh, yeah, okay. But it's 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 just that very smart-ass sort of comments of, of what's going on in this scene. But there we, we now transition over to um, a shopping mall and we've, and we've got Diane taking the kids out, obviously getting clothes or getting something, but they're, they're out there. And it's at this stage that we see that Carol Ann happens to come across Kane and Kane has now you know, manifested himself into human form. And, you know, at this stage that Carol Ann was separated from, from not only from Diane, but also from Robbie. And Diane does come up, you know, come up to him and says, you know, oh, thank you so much for finding, you know, my daughter. But as they're walking away, Carol Ann happens to look behind her and there is Kane standing there looking at her, but people are walking directly through him. So I was like, okay, that's a, that's a little bit creepy. Now we go to the, the, the same day and Carol Ann is out on the, uh, the front lawn, just just playing like kids do and of course now it starts to rain and um so now we're seeing that robbie comes out to try and help caroline into the house but we are seeing that as it's pouring down with rain kane is coming up and walking up the driveway towards the house and this is where it's really one of those now we're going to make a bit of um a, a standoff to see if steve is actually you know able to be you know i don't know in in this regard he's almost like he's coming up against his enemy his enemy that he doesn't know about right now so it's a battle of wills to see how far can Kane go can Kane convince him to let him in the house or whether Steve is able to repel him away from the house and keep Kane now at a distance ah. hi I saw you at the shopping mall sure you did I remember your little angel dear allow me to introduce myself Henry Kane. Come on. You know, I gotta tell you, we've had a we've had enough of door-to-door salesmen, if you don't mind. Reverend Kane. What I sell is free. Mind if I come in and, and talk to you about it? Mom, I don't feel well. You know, I gotta tell maybe uh we just talk from here, alright? Come inside, baby. I want to take your temperature. Come on, Rob. Glad you have this opportunity to talk with your family out of the way. Because I believe you have a problem here. Oh, yeah? Yeah. I believe there's an Indian living here with you. Taylor. <laughs> well, that's what he calls himself now. You are in danger. What do you mean? I'm with an organization whose concern is families like your own, families in crisis that are preyed upon by charlatans with fake magic and false solutions. Now, I don't expect you to believe me now, but let me come in and talk to you about it. This is this crazy. This is nuts. Please! Open your heart and your mind to what I'm saying. He is angel. Now, Kane really is pushing the, the point on Stephen. He's really trying to get him to let him in. And, 
You know, he does even start to psychologically attack Stephen by saying that, well, you know, your family seem to be gravitating towards Taylor. If they've got a problem, they'll go to him and talk to you and talk to him about it. You know, they don't come to you anymore. You are on the outside of the circle. And, you know, if you just let me in, we can talk about this and try and, you know, help you out in this sort of situation and you can almost see that Stephen starts to relent a little bit and he does go to almost open the door and Kane's like come on let me in and you do see that Stephen is really he's on the cusp because you know he's been told that you know the, the family is looking towards Taylor and not you and you're not a man anymore because Taylor's here so you do really see that he is playing on this come on Stephen open the door just let me in because you know what's going to happen that as soon as that door is open and he is allowed in there is all hell is going to break loose but of course, Stephen really says, look, no, just get the hell out of here. And this is when Kane really ramps up the, the emotional and the psychological attack and says that everyone in the house is going to die. And he's really screaming this point. And Stephen is like, get the hell out of here. And of course, this is when Kane realizes that at this stage, he he's, can't get through into the house this way. So I'm going to have to just find another way. So he does excuse himself and he walks away from the house. And of course, as as he walks down the driveway. Now, I don't know about about Stephen, because I'm, I'm watching this movie, and Kane evaporates and disappears. So, if you're watching this guy walk down your driveway, and, you, and he suddenly disappears, and the rain stops, you think to yourself that maybe there's something really wrong with this picture? But we see that Taylor comes out, and he congratulates him for resisting Kane, and says, and gives him a, like, a, a feather, and says, you know, he he you know showed himself to you. You resisted his evil presence. You know, congratulations. You're you you're ready to go on the next path. So come with me. We're going to go to the desert. So we see that he takes off into the desert uh, with Taylor, and Taylor gives him the power of of the power of smoke, which is a native spirit that can repel Cain. And of course, as we're seeing um, this whole thing, we go to the following day, and. You know, Robbie is trying to be this, this the good son. He's trying to help the family out. So he's in the back of of the house. They've they've erected a little tent for Taylor to be laying, but to be sleeping out there. And there's Robbie, and he's out there, and he's got the war paint on. And Taylor is trying to, you know, because Robbie really wants to be the man of the house and help the family out. So we see that Diane happens to come across this scene and starts to speak to Taylor about, hang on a minute, what 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 are you doing to my son? What are you doing? Well, hi, Mom. I'm going to help protect the family now. Let me see. Come outside, Robbie. Hey, I'm a big guy now. And I'm still your mother. Go in, in the house and yeah. wait for me. Thanks, Mom. You wants to be a man. Well, there are a lot of ways to be a man. I'm not sure wearing claw marks and war paint is one of them. How would you know? What? You're not a man, are you? Okay, I'm not a man, but you're not a mother. It is my job to do everything I can to make my children part of a normal world. A world of school and friends and lovers and, and families of their own someday. Well, that's good. Right, I know. And I hope that they'll learn to forget all this soon. Well, they cannot learn by forgetting. Well, what would you have me do? I mean, they're just children, for God's sake. Children have fought wars. They've built nations. They are strong and have courage. Don't treat them any less than that because they're young. Now, I think that was really poignant because Taylor is trying to explain to Diane that, you know, yes, okay, he is a child, but he is also wanting to grow and become a man. And, you know, children of his age you know, that, as he said, they've fought wars, they've built nations, you know, just because they're young doesn't mean they have any less of a voice than you or I have. So he's trying to show Diane that there is this this part of Robbie's life that he wants to be helpful. He wants to try and initiate some sort of protection within the family. And I think that's that's a pretty good thing to actually do. I mean, you know, I guess in the Native American tribes, there are, there are children that go off and they, they go out and they... I don't know. I mean, I'm not a Native American, but I'm sure there are certain tri the certain things that they do to initiate children into manhood or boys into manhood 
uh, women, women into womanhood, you know, that sort of stuff. So I guess, I mean, I, I think I'm probably just tripping over my tongue here at this stage. I'm probably digging myself a grave right now. But it really is a very poignant scene that he's trying to explain to, to Diane that just, you know, just because he's young, don't treat him like a child. He's trying to help. It's after this scene where Diane goes into the house that we're seeing that there is a car pulling up into the driveway and it happens to be Stephen. And Stephen's definitely got some car problems right here, right now. Okay, Taylor. Okay. Okay. Huh? Huh? Okay. You can stay in the house, okay? You can have my aura, my spirits, the ghosts, the whole deal. The whole cassava. But keep your hands off my car. Okay? Hands off. It's worse than it was before. Car's still angry, huh? Angry? That car is pissed. I think that is an absolute classic line. I mean, that is by far one of the best lines I've heard about the car is pissed. I mean, that is just brilliant. So now we do see that uh, Tangina um, happens to show up at the house and so much so that she freaks the hell out of Diane because there's a knock on the door and Diane is, you know, walking away from the front door and she goes over the front door and instead of opening it directly she opens up the little peephole on the, the top of the door. Now, we all know how small Tangina, uh, Tangier is, so... You know, obviously Diane can't see her at all, so she closes the pe closes the peephole and goes to walk away from the door again. And of course, there's another knock on the door, so Diane's like, "Okay, here we go." So she opens up the door, and there she is. Tangina is there, and it's like, "Oh, thank God you've arrived." And she's like, "Yeah, well, I, I'm here because we've got a, we've got a problem, and uh, we uh, we need to talk. I need to speak to you about this situation that is getting increasingly worse for the family." Below the old cemetery. What seems to be a tomb with many bodies in it. Directly below your house. Who are they? The researchers don't know who these people were. There are no marked graves. There are, however, records of a religious sect that mysteriously disappeared. What happened? The spiritual leader was a medium who led his followers out to California in the early 1800s to start a utopian society. They disappeared near Cuesta Verde and were believed massacred by Indians. This could be that. Here's a photo of those people. I think you should have a look at it. I know this is hard for you, dear, but I need your verification on something. You see, I don't really trust my instincts anymore. Now, hold this one and tell me what you feel. Oh my God, I've seen him. I thought so when. Here. At the mall, at our house. Who is he? Tell me what you feel. Just well, tell me what you feel. What do you want me to do? Who is he? I've consulted others. They've told me things, but they said you know more. I don't know anything. Yes, you do. You traveled to a dimension few people have ever traveled to incarnate. Your daughter is highly clairvoyant. As was your mother, I suspect. As you are as well. Now tell me what you feel! It is him, it's the creature. They're following him in death like they did in life. They seal themselves in the cavern because Cain tells them that the end of the world is coming. The day he predicts for the end comes and goes. But Cain won't let them leave. Don't. Please. Please don't. Please don't. Now, in case you weren't really sure what was going on in that scene, Tangina came over and gave some photographs for Diane to look at. And there was some there was a picture of the, the whole group of people that actually had followed Cain into the cavern. And then there was the photograph of, of Cain. And with her holding the photograph, she could actually then relive what had actually happened. And she could see what Cain was doing to these people. So we do see now 
The tailor warns the family that Kane is extremely clever and will try to tear them apart. So it's now you now have to be on your guard. But unfortunately, Taylor now has to leave. So he's left the family. And of course, the family's morale completely you know drops to the ground because you know they were so you know relying on you know Taylor as the sort of like the backbone of this whole situation. But you know Steve is trying to get morale going and saying, oh well, let, let's go to do this. Let's go to do that. Let's go to the water park tomorrow and put you know water wings on E Buzz and throw him down the water slide. But the kids aren't having it. You know, Robbie is sitting there. <laughs> He's not even interested in eating. He's sitting there with a baseball bat and a um, football helmet on holding that ready to defend the family. So really, the, this whole morale is really going down. And of course, what does Steve do? Steve decides he's going to drink a little. Now, he'd been drinking previously around uh, Taylor, and he actually asked Taylor whether he wanted a drink. But, you know, Taylor said, nope, I used to drink, but it just led to bad dreams. So I'm not going to be doing any of that. So we're seeing that Steve is now drinking tequila. And what happens to be floating at the bottom of the tequila? The mezcal worm, which happens to be possessed by Cain. And of course, when Steve does finish the bottle and he swallows the worm, it temporarily possesses him. And the possessed Steve then goes upstairs and tries to rape Diane. But as this whole thing is happening, she does cry out that she loves him. And of course, this then weakens Cain. Um, and Kane's hold on Stephen, and then Stephen ends up by vomiting out the worm, which is possessed by Kane, which grows into a huge tentacled horror, and it is vile. But the way that he throws it up, I mean, it's it's one of the the classic scenes of of Poltergeist too, you know, when he throws up the worm, it is just oh god, it's terrible. But we also see that um, Caroline has been told previously that if there's any drama that actually happens, this is what she was told by Taylor. If anything that happens in the in the house, run to the car, get into the car, lock the doors, you'll be safe in there. So I think that's really great advice because, you know, that way the kids are out of the way. Robbie's gone to hide somewhere and now the family, both Diane and Stephen, are trying to find where the kids are, but also are trying to avoid this huge tentacled creature that Kane's um, you know, morphed into. But as they're trying to find the kids through the house, Kane attacks Stephen from the ceiling, but Stephen uses the smoke spirit to send him away, which was really good because when he went to the um, ceremony with, um, with Taylor, the spirits floated around him. And then, of course, just like happened with Taylor, the smoke spirit then morphed into a spirit and shot in through Stephen's nose. So it's almost like it's a backup plan. If nothing, if something else happens that you can't defend, I can come out and help you. And with, this is exactly what he does. He spits this smoke out at this creature that the cane has become and manages to get um, you know cane away from the situation. Now, before this whole thing was happening and we saw that Cain, that Cain had actually taken over Stephen, he, he was really trying to engage with Caroline. And Caroline knew right then and there that that was not her father. So when they get to the car and Caroline's locked him locked herself in the car, he's like, come on, open the door. And, she's, and he's like, oh, sweetheart, that wasn't me upstairs. That was someone completely different. Please, please open the door. But of course, we see that the power tools are all starting to attack the, the family. Not not the greatest CGI, um, I must admit, with the uh, with the chainsaw. But you know, it's 1986. We've got to give them, cut them a little bit of slack on this one. But we do see that the chainsaw is trying to attack the car, and the family's in the car trying to, um, you know, get away from the the the, the house. And the house is now falling apart. But we do see that the family decides that screw it, we are not going to go up against this anywhere but on his own turf. We are going to go to the other side and confront Kane. In this, in this scenario. So the Freelings then return to Cuesta Verde and with Tangina and Taylor, they enter the cavern below their former home where Kane pulls Diane and Caroline over to the other side. And it's really interesting because they walk in and Diane immediately sees all the dead bodies and Kane sitting there like on his perch, you know, uh, presiding over the dead people. And as she said, they follow, he's, they're following him in death as they did in life. So he, you can see, you can clearly see that he's sitting there perched over his followers. Is at this stage, there's a, like a giant flash of white light and boom, Caroline and Diane have just evaporated and gone. So I was like, holy shit. So then Steve and Robbie go to find Taylor, who happens to be in another part of the um, the cave. And Taylor's watching the whole thing through through this um, fire, through this um, open fire that he's got, and uh, he says that he can see them. But the only way through to get the to get Diane and Caroline is through the fire. So Robbie and both Robbie and uh, Steve jump into the fire in the hopes of being able to reunite 
with Diane and Carol Ann and bring them back to the other side, which is actually working quite well because as they go into the other side, it, it appears as a place of floating limbos without a sense of direction. So Steve, Diane and Robbie and Carol Ann reunite in this floating area to try and you know be brought out to the other side and back into our reality. But now the monstrous transformed Kane grabs Carol Ann and begins to drain her life force. And so much so that, you know, there's, there's Carol Ann goes to call out for her mother, but goes from a child basically from there to an adult and into like a very withered old woman and into a skeleton. So it's like, holy shit, you know, this, <laughs> she's, she is getting her life force drained. But of course, it's at this stage that we see that Taylor is watching this whole thing from where he is in the cavern. And he sees that this is happening. So he gives Steve a charmed native spear and he gives it to Steve in his hands and he's able to stab Kane with it, defending the, uh, defeating the monster. Carol Ann nearly crosses over to the afterlife. You can see her because at this stage that both Steve, Robbie and Diane have accidentally let go of Carol Ann. She starts floating away. They can't get a hold of her and she's floating further and further away. And Carol Ann nearly crosses over into the afterlife. But of course, we see this bright, giant white ball of light that comes out from the afterlife and we see that it's actually grandma jess and her spirit appears and ret returns her as in carol ann to the family the course the we see on the other side where where uh taylor and tangina is that they all reappear out of the fire and the whole freeling family have now returned safely to the other side which is into our reality <laughs> the, the following morning now we see that Steve comes out and, you know, the, the poor car, his poor car is a total piece of crap. And I love how Taylor looks at him and he goes, um, your car, it, it's, it's happy again. And he goes, oh, yeah, well, it, it looks happy. And of course, Taylor goes, yeah, but it would be happier if it came home with me. And Steve's like, really? And he goes, oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. And he's like, okay, there you go. Gives, gives Taylor the car and, uh. Off Taylor goes driving. Of course, at this, this stage that, you know, there is Diane saying to Steve, um, so you just gave our car away. Yep. Mm -hmm. Awesome. We've got no way, no way of getting home. And Steve's like, oh, okay. <laughs> Starts running down the, the old driveway, running towards Taylor's now, now car. That's just a giant pile of shit going, Taylor, Taylor, I need, we need a ride home. We need a ride home. The credits now come up onto the screen, and that is the end of Poltergeist to the Other Side. Now, I really do like this movie. There's not a lot of parts of this movie that slow down. I think for the time that it runs through, um, which is the 91 minutes, it doesn't slow down to the point where you're grabbing your phone, wondering, is this ever going to end? It's got a great storyline. It's got a couple of really great jump scares. Uh, one thing I do want to say is that the son, Robbie... I mean, I know he's growing up, but he's becoming a dick because he is he is a dick to Carol Ann. He's not a very nice brother. I mean, you, know, you think of the nice brother he was in number one, although he was a bit of a pain in the ass back there as well. But this one, he starts to get a little bit more of a pain in the ass. <laughs> he really does. But look, I've always enjoyed this movie, and I think that this is one that you'll thoroughly enjoy. If you do have Amazon Prime, it is currently there, along with, would you believe, Poltergeist Part 3, which we will be doing on this podcast, but uh, I just wanted to go back to the 80s for a, for a pretty good 80s movie. But look, on a scale of 0 to 5 buckets of blood, zero, had it, 0 being how do I get the last 91 minutes of my life back, to 5 it was a perfect movie and I'd watch it all over again, I can't give it a 5. Although, if you came into the room and you said, Paul, what are you watching? And I said, Poltergeist Part 2, and you said, oh, I'd love to watch that. I would I would sit and watch it again. Is it a perfect movie? No, it's not. It's definitely a 4 out of 5. I'll give it a, I'll give it a solid 4 out of 5. The storyline is good. The, the, you know, the, the acting is great. I would have liked that they would have maybe made a little bit of a hint as to the older daughter, where she was. I mean, we know that she was murdered, but maybe just give us a little bit of exposition as far as, like, she's at college or, you know, she's living with a boyfriend. I don't know, somewhere to try and tie it together because when you see number two, there is no mention at all of her anywhere. So it really comes down to, like, it's now, you know, uh, the, the family of four rather than the family of five. So I would have really liked a little bit of, you know, uh, of acknowledgement for that poor girl that um, was unfortunately murdered by her boyfriend but uh, and i think you can actually you can actually see um if you do happen to go onto her name you will actually uh, get a bit of information as far as what actually had happened to that poor girl um because it really was very very upsetting exactly what had happened but she was uh, you know she wrapped up the movie 
um, Poltergeist, obviously number one. But on, on October 30th, I'll just tell you a little bit about it. On October the 30th, 1982, Dunn was strangled by her ex-boyfriend, John Thomas Sweeney, during an argument on the driveway of her West Hollywood home. She fell into a coma and died five days later on November the 4th, 1982. So... It's it's a very, very upsetting thing to happen to that girl. So, as I said, I would have liked maybe a little bit of uh, acknowledgement for her contributions on number one and just carried over a little bit to number two. You don't have to make a big thing about it, but just carried over a little bit to number two just to say that the Freeling family wasn't just a family of four, but was a family of five. Look, before we get finished on this podcast, we have to do Paul's Fun Facts. Now, there are so many great, great bits of trivia with this movie. Please let me indulge myself in this because I think you'll find this really, really interesting. And there are a lot that I'm going to go through today. So just just hang on to your hat. So the only family member absent from the film is Diana, Diana, which is the daughter. Now, we obviously, we know what happened to her. However, the script basically said that she was off at university. But the scene that explains why she was away was never filmed. So it's like, well, that would have actually been a really great idea because, you know, it would have made sense. Um, ultimately, no mention is made of Diane in the final film or Diane, Dana. Oh my God, it was Dana, not Diane, Dana. Oh boy, forget that. Forget what I said, it was it was Dana, not Diane. <laughs> oh God. Um, there was no mention made of Dana in the final film or her being in college. It was decided by the filmmakers to retire the character and not recast her out of respect for the deceased actress and her family. Okay, that's fine. That is completely understandable, and I wouldn't want to do that either. But for God's sakes, at least explain where Dana was. Film the scene so we know what the hell is going on. Now, the partially grown vomit creature that Steve actually vomits out of his mouth was performed by stuntman Noble Craig, a triple amputee who lost, who lost both legs an arm and an eye while serving in the Vietnam War. Holy crap on a cracker, as they say. Heather O'Rourke, obviously, as we know, is Carol Ann, was so afraid of Julian Beck, Reverend Kane, the first time she saw him that she burst into tears. Yeah, that, that will actually do, um, do it for you. Now, Julian Beck, obviously Reverend Kane, his gaunt appearance is the result of stomach cancer that would claim his life, unfortunately. Now, Craig T. Nelson, the father didn't enjoy filming the vomit monster scene because it had to be reshot so many times. It's like, come on, give me a break. The film originally had a running time of 131 minutes. Now, before editing down to 91 minutes, and you think to yourself, what was taken out of there? Some have, some have surmised that MGM rushed production and ordered the cuts, e.g. the final battle with Kane lasts all of two minutes. Zelda Rubenstein, who was Tangina, in particular was furious about this as she felt her best scenes were removed from the final cut and i actually do completely understand that if you're actually really um putting your heart and soul into that why would they take out those sort of scenes now just like the first film there are no murders depicted and no violent fatalities so i do like they've kept up with that because i guess they tried to make sure that that never happened in number one they carried it over to number two now, just like number one, as we know, there was some weird stuff going on in the pool. Well, it's been carried over because unbeknownst to most of the cast and crew, several of the cadavers were real skeletons. Here we go again. Upon learning of this, the crew demanded an exorcism to be held on the set to ease the rising tensions, which happened soon after. You think to yourself, why are they going down that path once again? I've got a couple more for you, so sit tight. So... Several scenes that appeared in press stills and promotional posters were cut from the film. Why they do this, I do not know. Example, one in which Kane tries to get into the house a second time and confronts Tangina. This omission angered Rubenstein as she felt that th that was one of the best scenes, which I would love to have seen it. In one of the in another one of the scenes, Steve and Diane see a flying toaster during a breakfast scene. I don't know whether I would have really cared about that one, but the fact that he was going to confront Tangina would have actually been really cool to see. 
Just a couple more to finish off. Now, the film was at one point to have been filmed in 3D. Not really sure how that would have gone, but it does explain a whole lot when you see the chainsaw coming towards um, the car. Several scenes, such as the appearance of the beast and the flying chainsaw, there we go, were filmed to take advantage of the process. This idea was eventually abandoned after seeing the failures of other gimmicky, gimmicky 3D horror films of that decade, including... Friday the 13th Part 3, Jaws 3D, which was terrible, and Amityville 3D. I thought it actually wasn't too bad, which was a previous flop from MGM. So, yeah, it it was it was unfortunately um, a flop. But, you know, I, I, there was a couple of them were actually not too bad, but I'll get to definitely say Jaws 3D was not one of the greatest movies I've ever seen. And, look, just one final one, because I know we've had a lot of fun facts. So there is a supposed poltergeist curse surrounding the three films in the series. Now, as we know, actress Dominique Dunn was murdered by her boyfriend after finishing the first film. Actor Julian Beck, which was Reverend Kane, died of stomach cancer during the shooting of the second film. And actor Will Sampson, Taylor, died from complications due to open-heart surgery shortly after filming. Of course, as we know, actress Heather O'Rourke died of a mysterious case of intestinal stenosis shortly before completion of the third film. Also, many cast members' careers have suffered after appearing in the films. This is blamed on the filmmakers choosing to use real skeletons in place of props, as it was cheaper. For the first film's endings, where the skeleton emerges from the cemetery underneath the house, this curse drew a lot of media hype and controversy, which would ultimately end the series, until the remake of Poltergeist in 2015, which we haven't done yet, but we will do, and... Uh, I don't know. I, I, I've only seen it once. I have to go back and re-watch it again, but I don't think I'm going to be as impressed with that one for the second time around that I am with these ones. But look, there are so many more fun facts and trivias and stuff like that. It is a plethora of stuff here, and it is really, really fun to read all of them. But that was, that was just a handful of ones that I really, really thought were interesting, and I thought you might find it interesting as well. But look, thank you very much once again for coming to visit me at the Horror Crypt Podcast. Remember, I'm on social platforms, Instagram and Facebook. Just look for me there, Horror Crypt Podcast. And if you want to send me a direct message, just give me an idea of like a movie that you'd like me to do. If you want me to watch a movie, send me an email, horrorcrypt2022 at gmail.com. I will absolutely happily watch it and I will then review it and it'll be your episode. And if you want to be a guest star on the the episode, give me a, a holler and we can set it up where we actually have a bit of a conversation backwards and forwards and you can be on an episode of the podcast. There we go. Great idea. Anyway, as I said, thank you very much for coming to visit me. And I will say, like I say every single week, I'll say it one more time before next week. I will creep you later. Stay home and eat all the freaking chips, Kip. Napoleon, don't be jealous that I've been chatting online with babes all day. Besides, we both know I'm training to become a cage fighter. <laughs>